Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Explanation is about surfacing all of that amassed knowledge that the obsessive has and then organizing it in a way that makes sense to an intelligent, curious person who doesn't happen to have been following this for a long, long time. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of The Ezra Klein Show. This is the week of Vox's fifth anniversary. Uh, We started Vox five years ago. I don't know if if it feels like it's been less time or more time, but but it is remarkable to me that we're here uh, and that we are what we are right now. So I asked my co-founders, Melissa Bell and Matt Iglesias, to join me for a conversation about Vox, about what we were trying to do, about whether or not we did it, about where we fell short, about what failed, about what succeeded, about what we learned, about what was hard. Um, I really tried. We really tried to make this not just a, a a bunch of brags. Some things have gone really well, thank God, but some haven't. Um, and we tried to to get at both of those and to talk through in, in as honest a way as we, we could or felt comfortable doing. You know, it, it was hard doing this, launching this. Um, and I think we all learned a lot along the way. Learned a lot about running an organization, honestly learned a lot about ourselves. And I think that is all there in this episode. So the, I would be remiss right here, though, if I didn't say thank you to all of you. Um, we can be here celebrating Vox's fifth anniversary because we have an audience that cares about what we do, that finds value in what we do. And I really try never to take that for granted. So I'm grateful. I hope that that you enjoy this conversation. It was fun for me to do some of the stuff I... I some of it I knew and some of it it was a little different than what I expected them to say, which I appreciated. Um, these are two really, really brilliant, wonderful people, and it's been a great joy to be able to be on this journey with them. Um, as always, my email is EzraKleinshow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinshow at Vox.com. Here's my conversation with Matt Iglesias, who's now a senior correspondent at Vox, and Melissa Bell, who is now publisher of all of Vox Media. Let's start here. Um, Melissa, when when we decided to do this, when when you, me, and Matt decided to do this, why did you tell people we did it, right? Why? What was your explanation for what we were going to try to do? It's hard because I feel like I've told this story so many times. I can't, I don't remember the exact, the exact the feeling that I had five years ago. But my best recollection of it is this. Uh, you and I had worked together for three years at the Washington Post, um, really experimenting with a lot of different approaches to how to do journalism differently and do journalism according to the technology of the internet. And we were ready to take a bigger step. And we had some really big, broad ideas that we wanted to experiment at. But it was tough to do it within the constraints of um, really a print model, uh, revenue business model. 
And I think that we wanted to have a little bit of freedom to experiment and try some things that might fail, that might succeed. And there there just felt like so there was just so much changing about our industry and about um, the Internet at the time. And I wanted to do more, really. And I think that this opportunity and working with the two of you um, was a chance to try to get a little bit even crazier with our experimentation. So here's the, the, the way I think about it. So similar, but I, but I think a little bit more specific, is that by the year 2014, everybody agreed that the future of media was digital, right? Like, there was no more, like, debate. There was no more, like, Matt, you have to learn how to write magazine articles, you know, that kind of thing. And it seemed to make the most sense to me that a digital media organization should be led by veteran digital media people. Right, like people who had a great depth of experience and track record of success in digital media. But because of the happenstance of time, the veterans of digital media were like the three of us, right? But the actual bosses at the media companies that were like saying that they thought the future of media was digital were just like people who were like 10, 15, 20 years older than us who actually had less experience in the field of digital because they had held on to doing print longer and later. And it's not like literally every company was like that, right? Like BuzzFeed was started by some people who'd been doing digital for a long time. And BuzzFeed was a big success. And that wasn't a coincidence, right? And it wasn't that like every digital media company should be, should have been, or, or will ever be exactly like BuzzFeed. But that was like the right model for digital media company was to have people who had been doing digital for a long time do it, not like have people like trying to explain how, oh, guys, we're going to use the internet now. And like, you know, why? To me, there we were in this funny moment where there was a window that had opened. And in a way that I want to talk about and a little bit regret, I think the window may have even closed. Um, but there was a window that had opened where you could build a digital business and where you had a sophistication in the digital tools and like the speed of the internet mm -hmm. in the ability to build um, publishing platforms and in the ability to distribute new form, new, new organizations, right? You could go on Facebook and get an audience that way. You could go on Twitter and get an audience that way, Google, et cetera. I mean, it was really a lot easier to develop an audience than it had been before. And so it, it seemed to me there was this real opportunity to reinvent or at least build upon. How did we present this kind of information? Um, it was way later, and Melissa, I think you'll like this. I don't even know if I've told it to you. It was way later that I remembered um, that I had had a meeting with Marcus Broccoli at the Washington Post, and he was just doing a, a kind of roundtables with different groups of, of writers there. And so there's one in the business section, which is where I was. And I was saying in the meeting that um, we should have something where we created big topic explainers that were linked to every time that we wrote about that topic. We should have like this one big like what is in Obamacare and another that's like what is in, you know, the Dodd-Frank bill. And I think everybody's like, yeah, it's a good idea. And but I, I think it, it would have been really hard to build, um, was in fact really hard to build. And it seemed to me that you have this ability now to merge new news content with these underlying topic explainers. You'd have the ability with persistence to, to, to attach things constantly in interesting ways. And I think with embeddable card stacks, we, we ultimately did do that in a pretty, pretty interesting way. 
And so there's just like there's all this opportunity to rethink things. And and to Matt's point, if you're going to rethink it, you you had to you had to build it digitally from the ground up. The thing that um, I regret, uh, and I think that that we evolved past it in, in 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 useful ways. But the thing that I regret is that that was this really like quick window where the digital tools had gotten good enough, but it was before we fractured into our work being hosted on so many different platforms we didn't control. So that there was this real moment where it made sense to invest in your platform specifically. It made sense like to, to talk all the time about how good your CMS was. And you still do, right? I mean, Chorus is really great because it's great in part because it's great to write in, but in part because now it's great at publishing to all these other platforms in a seamless way. But we can't manipulate the underlying, you know, uh, Google AMP product or Flipboard or, for that matter, YouTube in a different way. And so this moment we had where you could really reinvent, um, you know, what was possible in digital text, I feel like ha- I feel like it was brief and it was shining and it gave it ended up being a way that we built a really different culture that allowed us, I think, to, to create really cool products for these different platforms individually. And I want to talk about all that. But I, I feel in a way that makes me a bit sad that part of the initial vision uh has been overtaken by just the march of uh, of the platforms and and the fracturing of of where the audience actually is. I, I the only thing that I'd say on that, and I push back on this a little bit, and I and I can say this in part because I am now Vox Media, not and not Vox, so it's this is not to my own credit. But Vox, it, the, I think what you're pointing out as a as a problem of Vox's success, Vox is not just a digital text product. Vox has done an incredible job of moving its mission from a digital website to podcasts to television shows to I think I think you guys are across 14 different platforms and medium types. And so I'd actually That's blame- crazy, is that true? Yes, it's true. <laughs> 57 varieties. Uh, <laughs> and and you do it in a way where it feels like Vox in each of those experiences. I think that that's like something that is really powerful about the brand that we that we built and then a lot of other people built um took our took our work and ran with it. Um and so I still think that there is innovation in the digital tech space or the digital website space. Uh, uh, but because Vox has been able to grow in so many places, that is not our main focus. Um, and, you know, I think that that's something that I th- that I think about a lot. Like, w- what kind of company would we have been if we'd been less willing to try all of these new different experiments and different types? What if we just solely focused on card stacks, for instance, and made that our sole product. I don't think we would have been as, as um, ambitious or successful. But let's, um, let's talk about card stacks, though. Because, I mean, you're like, well, what if we had just focused, you know, obviously, if we had just focused on card stacks, that would be a problem. Although but, a lot of people wanted us to do that. Right. Like, that was an interesting thing about going to the venture capital right. folks, where they're like, just do your new thing. Right. So, like, to, to tell the story, right? I mean, we had an idea. Like, we wanted to do explainer-focused media. And then we had an idea about persistence, right, and that you needed to play with the concept of time in a different way digitally than you had in the periodical space or in the way that the internet had been doing so far. Because a lot of, like, early internet was, like, fast, fast, fast. So it was like a daily newspaper that came out 20 times a day. And we were saying, no, like, you can also be slow. You can be persistent. So that was our idea. Then the idea sort of refined into card stacks. And there was a lot of sense from 
tech people that it's like, well, if you have a new idea, you should just like bet everything on the new idea and either succeed wildly or or totally fail. And we, I don't know, we're journalists. We, we didn't do that. Um, you know, we, well, because the thing is like technologists have marketable skills. But, but let me say one thing on that because I remember those meetings. When, when they said, one of my arguments for not doing that was that the idea was that the car, this would all be a flywheel, that the car, which is another term tech people like, so that worked, but was that in reporting the news all the time, you would be getting the new information you would need to then update the underlying persistent content, that the thing was supposed to feed on itself. And so if you sever the card stacks from the news, you would take away like the core thing that was going to make the Vox product more like more efficient. I mean, the idea was that if the card stacks are the most valuable thing, then every day we're building this archive of real value. And so, you know, if, if that actually works and our journalists are, you know, 30 percent more um, productive for the same work. I mean, then we can really then we really have a leg up on the industry. Right. Um, well, so, that work, but that was the idea. I, I don't I don't know who listens to this show, um, but there's a good chance that if you're out there in the audience, you have no idea what we're talking about. Um, but so when Vox launched, though, like card stacks was a big deal, right? We we worked with um, with Melissa with some of the the Vox Media product team and developed this. Um, I, I don't know how else to say it. Like it was a it was a product. It was a digital media product that had some things in common with an article, but it was like different. They were like web apps and they slid and individual cards could be embedded in articles. And it was really cool. And it reminded me, I was like a, a hypercard guy back on my Apple II GS a million years ago. It brought a lot of the the spirit of of that and that sort of fun and joy. They were tactile. It was a great mobile experience. And I thought it made sense editorially. It made it was good from a, a UX perspective. And for a time there was a lot of popularity to them also. So, which was amazing. And so they just because I want to just to be yeah. one more piece more specific. So you'd have like an article about ISIS, mm -hmm. you know, something that just happened in the fight against ISIS. And then underneath that article, the card stack about ISIS would be there. So you could then just be like, oh, well, what is ISIS and where is it and who is in it? And yeah, so and it's so like you'd have like the Wikipedia article that we created underneath the new article. And the other part about this, and, and this is where I think it goes into the future, is that what the, the, the theory behind it was that we understood that people are busy and uh, that they may not have all the information that they need to understand a news story about the latest thing that just happened. Um, and so the card stack was one tool to help them gain more information about the, the uh, historical context, the why of the story um, that often gets cut from uh, uh, the latest news. Right. And the problem is it turned out that as a digital publisher, we just did not control our own destiny to the extent that you would need to make that work, that a lot of people read us on Apple News, uh, that we need to be able to publish to Google AMP, that we need to be able to, I, I think Facebook Instant Articles doesn't exist anymore, but for a time it, it did exist. Like we, we needed to be able to conform to bigger technology platform companies own technical abilities and how things would work. And that meant that we couldn't write, it didn't mean that we couldn't do card stacks, but it meant that we couldn't do articles that assumed that this card stack feature was going to exist. Because when we shipped that article to Apple News, there wouldn't have been a card stack on it. And so then that started to, to an extent, unravel, not like the 
the profound editorial logic of them, but like the superficial idea that we could count on this project to be a superstructure for for news updates. It it didn't work, not because like I, I say, like some of our ideas were were like wrong or bad, but like this idea was like it was too good for the world. Well, I'd give it one other example of it, um, which is that annotations. I've always wanted to have a really good annotation tool across Vox. Melissa, you guys can't see, but it's smiling at me because it's been. But the problem at a certain point was that to invest in that annotation tool, if you began really writing articles with the annotations in mind, such that the annotations were genuinely important to the article, then if somebody read them in a place where the annotations got broken, where they didn't port over in a Facebook Instant article or Google AMP article, the article wouldn't make sense. And so th- this is a little bit of the bigger picture. Remember when for Rap me. Genius was like so hot? Right. And then it was it was this, destroyed. And this is a little bit of the, the bigger picture for me, which is that over time, um, there's a huge amount of innovation, I think, still. And I and I do want to talk about how it funneled and and, and Melissa handed to you to talk about this, like how the nature of what we were trying to innovate then changed. But there was a lot of innovation of your platform specifically that I think would have been really cool. And the industry just changed in a way that you want to innovate in things that everybody can see, right? You want to innovate in things that are going to reach your whole audience or allow you to be on a platform you couldn't otherwise be on, um, as opposed to primarily innovating on things on on your own website, which certainly for a place like Vox, it might be different for, you know, some other organizations. But for a place like Vox, like our website is not it is one part of our, our 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 audience, but it is not the majority by any means of our audience. I okay, so I want to answer. I want to say two things here, um, and they're slightly different from each other. So I want to make sure that I have them in my head correctly. The first is that I think one thing that we've learned really well in, with, with Vox is that you have to create content actually according to the medium that that you're in. You want to you want to hire people who know who are the best video makers in the world so that they can um, create the best video. You want to hire people who really know and love podcasts so you can create the best podcast. Um, and you want to create you want to create uh, this, a similar approach to websites. The challenge that I think that we've always had with digital media is that this that the mediums we based it off of a print medium. We took an article from a print medium and put it on the web, and that has become the standard and the norm. So that's what Apple News uses. That's what Facebook Instant Articles uses. That's what Google AMP uses. And this is for for somebody like me who 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 wants to develop uh, a different approach. Um, it has been frustrating how long it has taken us to think about a different way to use the the internet medium to give content to people. Um, I think that this is why when you see something like uh, Snapchat stories, it becomes an adopted method by Instagram and Facebook and all these other platforms because there hasn't been that much innovation in the in, in terms of like actual um, formats. That being said, I think that the I think that sort of your history of the card stacks, Matt, there's a that there's a slightly different history that I know of. And the history that I the know secret of is that history. Well, I, I, you know, I mean, I want to, I want to be, I want to actually celebrate some of the things that I think have been really good and value about about Vox and our company at large, and and I think card stacks were a product that we really cared about and and um, and developed. But for those of for those of um, the audience that might not know this, Vox is a part of a larger company called Vox Media, and at the time that we started to work with Vox Media, there were already three really robust uh, networks: SB Nation, The Verge, and Polygon. Um, and then Vox Media acquired Curbed, Eater, Racked, and Recode. Uh, so the so the company essentially brought on five new um, networks 
And the same product team had to think about how to support all of those different networks. So we built Cardstacks. It was a really cool product for Vox. And then the product team took that same technology and built what we call Mapstacks um, for Eater and Curbed. And it was a way for us to provide really strong restaurant recommendations um, for the Eater audience. Um, and then real estate listings and also just um, places to note where you love to live in the Curbed universe, which is a real estate and architecture uh, network. So our underlying Cardstack network became one of like the key ingredients to Eater and Curb success uh, and has continued to be a really strong part of that offering. So we actually made a tool that worked. It just went into the next iteration on Eater and Curbed. When we when we saw the success of map stacks on Eater and Curbed, we wanted to bring that same technology back to card stacks and and improve on it. But the challenge of doing that was it was a huge technology lift. And this is where I think a lot of like media companies and one of the problems that our media industry has gotten into is how hard it is to build CMSs and innovate on CMSs. Can you just say um, what a CMS is? Content management system. It's essentially both the publishing um, platform and the distribution method and the monetization method, all that kind of stuff that the tools that uh, that allow you to publish your content to a million different places. Um, when the New York Times wrote about uh, our launch, I believe that they um, said this was the area that I worked in and they called it unglamorous. Um, I'd like to publicly announce that they are incorrect. It's very glamorous, um, <laughs> although very complicated to explain. <laughs> um, but it, but essentially, the, the fact that we sort of saw this, the, the difficulty bringing MapStacks back to Vox and kind of really learning from each other led, for, led us to do a major project at our company where we built out our CMS, Chorus, into uh, an, a product that we could start to license to partners outside of Vox Media. We now have a business where we are partnering with other with other publishers that can use Chorus and the technology that we've built and developed for ourselves. So the thing, the reason why I say all of this is because I think that one lesson that we've learned is that even when we get something that doesn't quite work, we build off of it. We build off of our own failures, and that I think is really has been really strong and valuable. Um, for us as an organization. And it's like why we keep getting because because there is so much change in the in the digital space, it's important for us to say, okay, card stacks, we're we're ready to we're ready to sunset you and we're gonna move on to the next thing. Um and that's I think has been a strength of us keep going. But this conversation makes me think that we should bring card stacks back. You we're we're not we're not really doing that. <laughs> that's that's somewhere painful. somewhere Mandy Brown just like lit her phone on fire. <laughs> but um, you remember like you know, so when we started, you know, you say like oh, we you build on our our mistakes, but like and ideally we do, but like sometimes the mistakes just just like stay dead forever. And I think I I think that like whenever I talk to people about this, like one of the successes that Vox has had is just to try to be honest rather than ego maniacal about ourselves and our own ideas, right? And we, three of us, were like bloggers back in the day. I, I I used to, like, before there were CMSs, I, like, hand-coded blog posts and HTML and stuff like that. And we had most of our early hires were also, in some sense, bloggers. And we kind of had this idea at first that, like, bloggers were the shit. And so the way we should just like everything should be a blog and we weren't going to have copy editors and we were just going to like edit each other's posts and we didn't need to have all this bureaucracy. And like that was just wrong 
which which like is fine. Like we just stopped running the company that way, and we have a great copy desk now. And and I don't know, like to me, like that's just always something you have to learn. It's like sometimes you have like constructive failures, but sometimes you just like you have an idea, you believe in it strongly, like you give it a shot, and then you have to be willing to say like, nope. I was wrong and move on with your life. Matt, I mean, I, I, I laugh about that always because uh, I think one of the specific things in that story is the fact that you learned something about management and your own approach to it <laughs> and that that we thought that we could all be managers and that we could all be editors. And uh, and it turns out that that's not true, that there are that there are people who who are who want to create and enjoy that. And then there's people that actually should we should be bringing in who want to manage and run teams. And um, I agree with you. I think that that was like a huge lesson for us in the first year, uh, that there are certain there are certain structures that uh, don't need to be disrupted. And well, copy also, editors I, you is know, one I've, of them. I've, I've heard on Ezra Klein show episodes before about five-factor personality analysis. And like, I, I see this more now, right? And to be an effective manager, I think you need like a pretty high degree of conscientiousness and a low degree of neuroticism. And like to be a successful journalist, I think you need a lot of um, openness to experience, right? And like some people might just be amazing at everything, but like a lot of us might excel in some of those areas and be a little flighty uh, in, in other respects, <laughs> um, speaking personally. And it doesn't it doesn't really work out. You need a certain amount of poise in moments of uh, crisis that I think I lack. Um, and, you know, that's life. You learn. I want to go back a little bit to the Cards Fact story because to me this is, was, was a big part of our evolution because we, we make that story sound a bit pat. But so I was editor-in-chief through most of this. And I experienced the decline of card stacks as a genuine trauma. Like it was like a long dark night of the soul for me. And because we were putting all this work into building this organization and by objective metrics, it was doing great, right? Like our, we were hitting, we were beating our traffic goals by quite a bit. You know, we were attracting great talent. You know, there was a lot of good work. But I, I just constantly had this nagging feeling. And by the way, in the early years, not all of it was great work. Um, part of standing the thing up was we had to learn a lot and we failed. And to Matt's point about not having a strong enough core of editors right when we launched. And, you know, I mean, there there were things that went through that shouldn't have. All the articles were good. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, but I experienced the idea. Like I had, I had put so much of my personal vision for Vox into this one product. Right. So many of the ideas I had about what Vox was were in this one product that when this product began to, to creak, um, I was left a little bereft because, well, what was it all for? Right. Were we just making something like everything else? And I, I think of for me, the turning point was actually our Snapchat Discover project. So we launched on Snapchat Discover, which is this part of Snapchat where media brands um, have uh I don't know, publications, I guess. I don't know what to yeah, call it. Daily, daily issues. Yeah, it's like a daily yeah. edition. Um, and we are one of the early partners on that. And, and and we're not on there anymore for a, bunch, for a bunch of reasons. But I remember as we built that product, and, and this credit really goes to Allison Rocky, um, who's now our executive editor, uh, and and she led that team. But we created this like new team. And they created just something that had never existed before. And it was these single topic editions. And I just remember this one on gun on gun 
uh, violence in America. And it was beautiful. And they had really manipulated mood in it really well. And it gave you so much information. And it was just a, an explainer of a kind that had never existed. And I began seeing us do that. I mean, now we have a ton of examples today explained on, on you know, in our partnership with Midroll, explained on Netflix. Um, we, we do this, you know, our, our video team and, per, and our YouTube presence is unbelievable. And, and that's been like a real remarkable part of part of the organization. But back then, I was having more trouble seeing it. And it was like when I saw us create something that so well reflected us, it was like that was when I began to come out of this funk. And and the reason was, and I think this has been core to a lot of what's worked at Vox, that I began to see that even if this one product had failed, that around this product, because we'd put so much into the culture of that, right? Shark Weeks where everybody did nothing but card stacks and so much messaging, we created this organization that had a distinct culture, and that culture had as some of its features. It, it believed in explanation, and it had a very distinct vision of what explanation meant, right, which was a lot of contextual information about topics people were interested in and helping people become experts, not talking down to them. Um, it had a real uh, appreciation of the importance of design and visuals and the ability to convey information through those formats. It had a real belief in in, in tone and, and what things people were interested in and and how interested they were. And, you know, it had other, it had other dimensions too, but that we, that was when I began to see like we were actually building something here because we were building something that could take these founding values, the values that were what were animating card stacks and create a new product out of the values, ultimately in a huge number, maybe up to 14 um, different places. But, but that was when I began to see that this was actually working because I can imagine a way in which our traffic numbers were fine, but this was functionally a failure. If it hadn't created anything new, I, I think it would have been. And it's really been, you know, that that capacity to reimagine like those values into new products in a lot of different places, including, by the way, our, our core text journalism that to me has been the, the the thing that makes me ultimately proud of what we've done. Can I just say that I feel like card stacks were a metaphor that we put all of these. <laughs> the, the real card stacks were the friends we learned <laughs> yeah, a lot. We yeah, yeah, you have to take the card stacks seriously <laughs> rather than literally. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, I do think that the, they, gave us a, they gave us a product that sort of solidified a lot of the themes that we felt were important to Vox. But in fact, you didn't need to have the card stack. You just needed to have the themes and the themes of... Uh, thinking about uh, timelessness, um, thinking about explanation, thinking about a tone that we used to talk about as sort of your nerdy college friend that could help you um, stu study on a subject you didn't understand. Um, it's partly why we envision them as card note cards. Yeah. Um, so a lot of, I think that it helped us really solidify in the early days the identity of Vox that has then allowed us to translate that identity elsewhere. And this to me, again, as I, I sort of look over the media landscape, I think one really important thing, because it is so uh, cluttered, there's so many options out there for people, having a strong identity and a strong promise to your audience that they're going to get something from you that is that they can that they can rely on and count on helps set us apart um, and helps make us a product that that people uh, you know, one of my favorite things is like when when people make like a, a Vox Splainer joke in some capacity. There was a TV show that did it. And to have that yeah, my kind crazy ex-girlfriend. Yes. To have that kind of um, brand recognition feels um, in part based because we really started. We, we, able, we were able to start from a place where we had that solidly in place on day one. And it's taken us all the way through the, la the, la the next five years. Well, and I, and I also think, you know. Uh, 
to 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 brag, well, just brag egomaniacally. Um, that <laughs> I, I think like, one of the things that's important about Vox is that the core. Um, idea was really a set of editorial values, that it wasn't built around a um, web traffic insight. Because web traffic insights are incredibly important because it's really good to have people uh, see your stuff. But it's always changing. Right. And that's how you've wound up. I mean, if you if you follow media news at all, you'll have heard about endless stories about like pivots. And it always like ends in tears and tragedy and disaster. And that's because it like it's just hard. Like algorithms change, platforms change, tastes change, like the size of the phones change. And so when the center, right, like when 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 you pivot, like you need a foot planted somewhere. Right. And so, like, our foot was planted in a certain idea of explaining things. And so that means that when the opportunities arise, right, like the right talent, like for me, my Snapchat discover was when I realized how good the earworm video series yeah. was. Because, like, if I had thought about, well, like, what is, like, Matt Iglesias and most of the old Wonk blog team going to do? Like, really good video ex about pop songs. It wasn't, like, a natural fit, right? But, like, Joe Posner was one of the earliest hires here, video guy, like, incredible creative genius. And then Joss was, like, also incredible. And then Estelle joined that team, and she's incredible. And, like, music explainers is something I know anything about, but she knows a lot about it, right? And so then that gets done, and it's, like, an unimaginable... If you're not on the inside, like what the connection to that even would be, like seems so random, right? But it's – there is an underlying set of explainer values and then like talented people and what their actual interests are is going to vary and what like works on the internet from time to time is going to vary. But like as long as there's an audience somewhere, you can you can find it. I think a lot about the lessons of the success of our video team in part because I feel like I have so much less to do with it than I did in other places. And I, I don't mean I have nothing. To, I think like as a manager, I <laughs> like helped create space for them. And I think we oh, made okay. some really, really important <laughs> decisions at the beginning not to measure them by on-site plays, which is how a lot of other video teams were measured, but instead to like um, prioritize YouTube and social sharing and, and other things that were about whether or not people were, were um, watching the videos. But Number one, YouTube is our single biggest platform, I believe, um, uh, certainly in the amount of time spent on it. Uh, we have almost six million subscribers there. The work is unbelievably beautiful and high in its quality. It's unbelievably creative. And I mean, as, as Matt says, those first four hires, um, Johnny Harris was the fourth who's behind the, the Borders series. I mean, we're just, I mean, just an all-star team of geniuses. It's really, really remarkable. But I always felt that Two things. One is that because of the way we decided to do those videos and we went for a – we did not go for a volume strategy. We did not go for a strategy that was about how many – could you get tons of videos so there was always some kind of relevant video to put on an article page. So if the article page was overperforming, you could get more video clicks and those video clicks had a higher CPM and you could make like – eke out a little bit more money. Um, What's we the went, CPM? Oh, yeah. Uh, explain. Clicks per mil or – yeah, clicks per mil, right? In, in practice, it is how much you are paid by the advertiser per thousand views on a piece. Like, I, I yes. do know what it means. Yes. I always yes. forget so what the exact... So there was, like, exact... a business strategy of just, like, 
stick a video yeah. on all your high-performing articles, yep. and then you'll get a lot of video views, and a video ad sells for more. And we were trying to say, though, like, people who want to watch digital videos yeah. should find videos they love. So they don't have a, a huge volume strategy, They and but they began to have these videos that were just blowing up. And something that's so interesting to me about that team is that it's so... It interpreted like the initial Vox values a little bit differently, but very in a, in a very pure way. In some ways, I think they all they like their culture almost is very hostile to anything that truly doesn't fit the vision. In a way, I am all, almost always admiring of. And then sometimes when I go to them with an idea that's on the news, and they're like, "No, you can't do it." I'm frustrated by. But it, it was such an interesting thing to see the way they saw it, and and they really lean into evergreen and away from news, and they really lean into explanatory and and away from reactive. And I mean, some of that is the incentives of the platform, and some of that is knowing that you can't do the kinds of videos they do on a really rapid turnaround, at least not regularly. So you've got to give yourself enough time, and so you've got to have something that's going to hold. But the it, it's been so interesting to see things like that. I mean, t- the Today Explained team has interpreted us in a different direction. Um, the Netflix Explained team, which I'm which I'm on uh, yet again, like in these places where production is a little bit constrained, so you can't just lean into lean into endless volume. Um, and in these places where you people were taking sort of the ideas and then building a new culture around them, I've been really fascinated and really really gratified by how pure the concept came out. Like I often feel that my personal work is further from the initial vision than the work of these teams actually is, um, which may just say bad things about me. But I, I think it also speaks to the um, like, like that is the thing I'm proudest of in the culture. It's a part of the culture that I that got interpreted, not the parts that I created. You know, the part that what I think I uh, what I took away from uh, ben Bradley, the former editor of the Washington Post, at one point he—I don't know if you said this to me, Ezra, or if I heard this from an interview he did—but he said the most important job that he had um, as the editor of the Washington Post was to hire and fire well. And that always sounds a little bit odd because of the firing part, but I do think that as managers, there is no more important job that you have than to hire well, because you can't grow. I think this is one of the things that I, we learned is like. We were scrappy bloggers. We all, the three of us, and I'm looking at the three of us, we all um, were, a lot of the work that we did was because we were doing it. And then when we came to Vox, we had to figure out really quickly how to give other people the ability to do their own work and to give them some guidance and advice, but really to let them take it and run with it. And so I, I think we lucked out in a lot of ways, um, and especially in, in the early days when we were having to hire very quickly, um, we hired some r- incredible people. And I think that was like a that was a big sign of our success, um, was finding folks who had some of the same entrepreneurial drive and creativity and excitement about a new idea, uh, and then giving them the space to run with it. And I think this is like, this is still to this day is my biggest management lesson is success is nothing unless you hire the right people to do the jobs that you're not going to be able to do yourself. Um, hire people who are better skilled at those things. And then they'll, they're going to make something amazing that you don't expect. And I think that that's like really what we've, well, that's what we've seen across the board. So Jeff, a producer, he, he he was asking me a question that I have been asked many times when, when I've spoken to, to audiences, uh, which is, um, how did we come up with the name Vox? 
And I'm afraid that the story is like really disappointing, but <laughs> but the people deserve to know. Sure. I studied Latin in my youth. No. <laughs> Vox is it's the Latin for voice, and we wanted to give a voice to create. <laughs> so we 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 called it for a long time Project X when it when it had no name. Um, it was never never going to be the name, but that's what we used in our internal discussions. And and we can talk about sort of how we decided to go with Vox Media. But when we were out shopping the idea around, and we we talked to a lot of media companies, and we talked to venture capitalists, and we um you know talked to sort of some uh, f- semi philanthropic organizations, right? That that might that might kind of stake it. Um, but we ended up really thinking that the collection of things Vox Media brought to the table, um, we really liked Jim Bankoff and Trey Brunjet, who the the CEO and the, the head of tech um, at that time. Uh, and they had this great CMS, uh, which is really important, to, really important to us and a strong sales team. And, and, and they did things that had, I think they gave us, I don't think we would have imbued Vox with such a central interest in design and making things that are actually beautiful if that hadn't been the existing culture that The Verge brought to um, Vox Media. Like, I think we actually took a lot of valuable things from, from that yeah, culture. Yeah, there was a, a productive tension yeah. with, like, ugly blogger culture, <laughs> I think. Yeah, and I think of, like, Ted and, I mean, the design team. Anyway, but when we were coming up with names, uh, Jim Bankoff said, uh, we spent a bunch of money and, like, fought for a long time to get Vox.com because we're Vox Media, and we think you guys should be named that. And we initially bought and basically for the reason that if we were a huge failure, we'd bring the company down and, and destroy its reputation. And, and and Jim, bless him, you know, had a lot of confidence in us and continues to have a lot of confidence in us, but but kept pushing and, and kept saying it was a good idea. And, and so we did it, um, which I think has been great. Uh, and I love the name Vox and you don't get that many three letter, uh, you don't get that many three letter web addresses. But I mean, that's the, the main reason it's called Vox because the company already owned the URL. <laughs> The the only part of that story is that um, you might have balked. I actually was like, great if the, if we are named Vox, we're, they're going to have to help make sure that we're a yes. success. You were always because more we can't bring than down me. the comp- the company. I will say that we made the decision within an hour. It wasn't like a long ongoing debate. I think that we had an hour long meeting in which we debated whether it would be confusing for, for people to differentiate Vox and Fox, which has re- remained to be remained to be true. Um, but I think that it helped, and I think that and I think that. Uh, one of the reasons why we did come to Vox Media was in part their design and product culture, but it was also because they had examples out there in the market with products that were really, really compelling at the time. In in terms of like uh, early digital startups, they had SB Nation, The Verge, and Polygon. And I can remember thinking about when I was working at The Washington Post, I was really jealous of The Verge's live blog. Like they had such an am- they still have an amazing live blog. Every single big Apple day, they 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 um, are able to cover that event in um, one blogs. of the most successful. What is it? After, live blogs. That's <laughs> giving me the willies. <laughs> do you know? Do you know one of? I don't know if this, this is just like a funny throwback. Do you guys? This is like one of the funniest things that when I think about like our five years, you, the three of us had a huge fight over the design of the byline on the live blog. I don't think we ever. I don't think we ever used a live blog more than like two or three times we realized that it was not part of like what we should be doing at Vox and yet the three of us probably had like a pitched battle for two days about whether or not really? the byline yes oh yeah was, I yeah. was involved in this fight you were involved in this fight it was should it be hyphenated should it have the word by uh but it's so funny to think about that's that level of detail of a fight and uh I I miss those days we we had a lot of we we had good important fights back then. We we I think we replaced it like actually as a as a founding team we had a very constructive ability to like have arguments. 
Um, and I think that was really important. I think that there is a real weakness in teams that can't argue. And and we were a team and, and with the initial folks who came in, like Lauren and Allison and Joe, that could argue things out. And and I've always it often was hard, um, but I think it was a, I think it was a real and continues to be to some degree a real strength. We did spend more time than necessary arguing about the bylines of the live <laughs> blog tool that we never used. <laughs> I agree. I will. I, I give you guys credit for this, and I don't know if, the, if you guys take this as a compliment or not, but I, I often say that I feel like you you two in particular helped me learn how to fight well. Uh, and I don't know if it's just like my own personality or if it's if it's a gender dynamic, but I do think that in uh, that previously I I often took fights personally. I felt like my ideas when somebody when somebody attacked or criticized my idea, they were attacking or criticizing my my ability me, and me really at the heart of it. And I felt like working with the two of you helped me recognize that we should be fighting over an idea and it had nothing to do with me as a person. In fact, I think that you guys didn't really care. <laughs> it was just about I the idea. I about you as a no, person. No, I <laughs> <laughs> uh, thing to say. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. You didn't care in the moment. You weren't criticizing the, the idea because of, my, of me as a person. It, it had nothing. You, we would walk away as friends still after the fight. Um, and, it, and that really, I think, gave me the confidence to get into fights and defend my ideas. And it strengthened me um, in ways that I wish I had gotten an education on it earlier. Uh, on the topic of, of gendered things that came up when we were starting, uh, when we launched Vox, there was a like a lot of criticism, you know, Emily Bell and others, for it just being another. There's a rush of of what were considered to be like sort of like male-led startups. Um, and, and I always thought there was like a little bit of erasure of like recoding Kara Swisher and Ariana Huffington and, and, and Huffington Post. but there are all these articles and like you would often be erased from it in a way that was really, I thought, awful. And on the other hand, there was like real, there was a real fair line of criticism that our founding team in the sort of broader sense of the team, not just us, was, you know, certainly not as racially diverse as it should have been and was not at that point as gender diverse as it would ultimately be now where I think we're well over majority female. Um, but do you, do you, I know you've had reflections on that uh, in, in the years that have gone past. Yeah. Um, I want to know your guys' reflections on it too. I mean, I think that two things. One, it it was personally hard for me um, because I didn't want to have to be a public face of this of this project. It was nice to be able to work on this and be support, a, a supportive um, teammate and not have to be the one giving the interviews and not have, have to be the one uh, out there in the on the on stage and I had to learn really quickly that by doing that I was actually hurting our company by sort of hiding myself and my leadership I wish that I didn't have to represent women in technology or women in leadership um that that wasn't an issue but I recognized very early on that it was an issue and that I that to support Vox uh and to support and to show um our team that uh that this was a place that supported women, um, I had to be much more public. So personally, it was a tricky transition for me. Uh, it's been five years of learning how to not feel uncomfortable um, talking in front of the public. So I think that that benefited me because I am glad that I learned that. I'm glad that I can tell my own story and speak to that. But I also am grateful for that for the public criticism because I do think that it um, it really made us focus on this issue in a in a much bigger, sharper way. Um, we have improved as a company uh, for sure, but there is no bigger issue to me in um, 
in media coverage than the lack of racial diversity across media organizations. And that early criticism helped me uh, really think about this subject um, in a much more nuanced um, way than um, when we started. And um, and I think that this has been one of the biggest, I think one of the biggest successes, but also a continued problem that we that we face and struggle at our company. Um, you know, it, it, I feel really good about the gender the gender uh, work that we've done. I mean, you mentioned this uh, in terms of the, the Vox.com team in specifics. We have twelve. I think we have twelve managers. Nine of them are women. <laughs> um, that's I'm I'm very proud of that. Um, only two of them are people of color, though women women of color. And I think that we need to work on that um, in a real way. Uh, so it doesn't. This doesn't end. Um, and. Uh, and it and it's become a really important it's become a really important thing for me to be focused on. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, you you were talking a little while ago about taking things personally, and you know that was something I sort of wrestled with actually during some of that initial wave of criticism. People were like, "Oh, it's like white boys doing this thing," and I'm like, "Well, you know, my grandfather was from Cuba, and Ezra's dad's from Brazil, you know," but like ultimately. The point that the critics were making was like basically correct and getting like mad and fighting about it was not going to address anything. You know what I mean? And and particularly like something you can do. I mean, this is like a, a, you know, I argue on the internet for a living, right? And something you can always do is like find the weakest arguments that are being made and then like dunk on them, right? And that can be fun. And it's like one reason certain kinds of dialogue are so, you know, aggravating in a lot of ways. But it's like, okay, you step back and like you take like the the strong form of the criticism. And like, was that initial team as we had assembled it, like really going to be able to cover in an adequate way, like some of the big topics that came down the road news-wise? Like, it, it wouldn't have, you know? And we we moved to, to an extent, address those problems. And I think it paid off editorially. And, you know, it continues to be not, I think, like ideal, though, better than it was and hard. I mean, a hard problem for the the industry at large. But I did take away from that. Like, I think we wound up in a much better place than we had started at. And that was because of listening to criticism rather than defending ourselves from criticism, which I think is a little bit, that is a little like antithetical to the blogger spirit. You know, to yeah. like to like listen and then just try to do something instead of like fighting. Yeah, I, I found that whole period really, really difficult. Um, part of it was I, I felt there were things that were unfair. Like I really was angry about the way you were treated in that, Melissa, um, and the way some other key sort of founding members of the staff were just like wiped out of the coverage. Uh, that always really made me upset. The other thing was that, I don't know, my experience of that, like it, it all felt so fragile. Um, everything in Vox felt so fragile for so long. We were starting this thing. We had no idea if it would work. And at the same time, the way people saw us was we were part of the story of these like venture back, new things, like brash, arrogant. And I'm not saying those things aren't true too, but so it looked like we were part of like a power story, which was partially true. And also on the inside, we felt very powerless. And the experience was I always tried very hard to 
hear the criticism, but it was just like absorbing it, right? You couldn't do anything with it. It takes a long time to fix things. Um, we launched in six weeks before we'd hired our full staff or before we were anywhere close to hiring our full staff. And like, I think that was a really one, like one of our best decisions that we made to do that accelerated launch. But it also meant that the thing we presented to the world was sort of a beta um, the thing we presented to the world was like our minimum viable product with like the team that just kind of was like in the door six weeks in, not the whole team we'd, we intended to assemble. And I, I just found all that tough. Like I found that, um, you know, on the one hand, we got a lot of attention, which allowed us to succeed. And on the other hand, the attention was ungenerous and it was tough, you know, having something out there. And I'd be curious how much you guys felt this way. Having something out there that felt like that I felt so embodied in that felt like it was uh, so much of my own like kind of soul was bound up in it. And so like when it was worse than it should have been or when there was really something wrong, the absolute most deadly criticisms, which I still get today, are the ones I kind of believed. Right. If you could hit me with something that I thought was true. Like I, like it was like shattering because, you know, if you're creating something, you want it to be so great. And also you're creating it. Something that I never kind of really understood and have only understood now and is, is that I kind of always thought like we would succeed or fail. And it was never clear to me that you could succeed and fail, that like you could have great things happen and still fall short in ways that were really painful for you. And that it would always be this mix, right? That particularly if you were growing and scaling and getting big, that like certain things would always be not yet what you wanted them to be, or certain things would actually not be good at all. And other things would be great. And um, learning how to manage around that criticism and both like try to keep the organization stable amidst it because like it's painful for the staff um, and try to keep yourself stable amidst it because it's painful for you was one of my real tough management lessons. Because back when I was running Wonkblog at The Post, we were just insulated. Like if it was like Marcus Broccoli or um, Marty Baron who had to handle like incoming criticism and I was protected. If like I had a boss and if the boss thought I was doing a good job, like that was good enough. Uh, like that, that was like, then I was protected. And here, I mean, Jim Bankoff, but it, it wasn't quite like that. Like it was us out there. And um, the idea that this wasn't going to be what we promised it would be or was going to fall short was, I mean, that was a really that was a really tough thing to manage through. But also, you know, the alternative, which was to close yourself off to it, to either go on the attack or to just go deaf would have been much, much worse. I'm actually now going to criticize the criticism <laughs> um, because I think that, I think that everything you're saying is totally true, Ezra. And I think that one of the things that was really hard when we were launching, before we even launched, from the from bef what, uh, the minute that the story leaked that we were leaving the post, um, people were ready to criticize us. And I see this happen so often in um, media coverage, it, particularly around new media startups, that there's so much emphasis paid attention to the brand new. There's so much attention about like, oh, this is either going to be a huge success or a total failure. And we don't pay attention to the long story. What is working over time? What needs to change over time? And I always felt one of the examples that we talked about was around our diversity numbers. One of the reasons that we started off with, I think it was seven white men and three white women was because those were the people that we left the Washington Post with, that we were worried their jobs would be impacted because of our departures. And 
we ha- we were going to hire another 20 people. We hadn't even started hiring those people when we started to get that criticism that lobbed at us. And it really did, I think, hurt our ability to hire well. It took us a lot longer to build a network and to, and to help people understand that they could come to our company and um, and succeed and flourish here. Um, and, I, and I just... I do wish that there was um, a little bit more of a concept in um, in online media criticism to look at the longer picture. And, and I think that even when we think about our own success and failure, I think one thing when we started, I did think that there would be a moment that would mark us as like, okay, we did it. Like, congratulations. <laughs> like, we succeeded. We can go home now. But the the lesson of this job is that like, it doesn't end. The news doesn't end. Our the improvements that we have to make don't end. The way that we can get better, um, it is a this. It's a constant building that we have to do. And and I felt it. There's been a lot of moments where we hit some sort of moment that we have we've launched something or we've hired made some great hires or we feel like we can take a moment to pause. But we know the next day that there's going to be like ten more things that we got to do. I don't think I was expecting that. I don't think I was aware of that when we were starting out, that it's that success is going to come over five years, over 10 years, over 15 years um, in small moments, not as a consistent feeling. Although I think, you know, part of what made that such a stressful period, right, is we deliberately chose to launch the brand on a very accelerated time frame, right? There was a bunch of other new media launches happening at roughly that same time. And I think the way that most of those launches were conducted was very carefully, right? Like really build the team, like get it all set up and then launch something that like looks really nice, that works really well and that you think is like bulletproof from external scrutiny. And we didn't do that. I mean, we really did take a minimal viable product approach that was like, like, how quickly can we start publishing some stuff, right? And, like, the answer was, like, very quickly. I mean, it was hard. Six weeks. Yeah. It, it was hard work, but, like, it could be done, right? That said, like, there were a lot of problems, right? Like, it, it was a minimal viable product, and it, like, would sting to know that, like, you were, like, killing yourself out there to get this thing done. And then everybody was like, you haven't even, you know, and it was like, well, give us some time, man. That being said, like, this is one of these things that, like, it hurt my feelings at the time, but, like, we did it on that accelerated basis for a good reason. And looking back five years later, I feel like that's something that we were totally vindicated on, in part because a lot of our early ideas, like, were kind of blunders, and it was just good to, like, start doing it and, like, see that some of those ideas were wrong and you had to change course. And, like, some of that was on diversity. Some of that, like, we mentioned on the copy editors before. But that part of the, like, tech startup culture that I think we tried to copy, like, did make sense. That, like, the sooner you start shipping and the sooner you start seeing, like, what's working and what isn't working, the sooner you can fix it rather than sitting around a conference room and, like, trying to abstractly recognize what's going on. Like, we didn't have at that time, like, I don't know, like, what if we had done meetings to be like, well, what's our strategy? What's our time frame for moving into podcasts, you know? And it would have been totally pointless. And it was so much better to just move forward and eventually get to the point where we were moving into podcasts. This is Matt's whole thesis against meetings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that, that that was something that we always thought about. And I, it's it's about, like, learning from the audience and how do we and how are we responding to what they 
what they really need. Um, and I think that that's something that I'm also really proud about. I, I think we do it well at Vox, and I think Vox Media overall, with all of our networks, um, does a very good job about thinking about the service they're providing for people. And we learn from that every single day when we put something out there um, and then correct it and move forward in a different way. So two of the things that when we were launching, we talked a lot about is I'd say we had two real taglines. When we did interviews, when we put up that initial video, one was that we were going to explain the news. And the other was that what is most important isn't always what's new. And I'm curious how you guys think about to the degree to which we've succeeded or fallen short or struggled with those, with those concepts. I mean, let's begin with explaining the news. Like, what do you think explaining the news means, Matt? So, I, I mean, I think that explaining the news means helping people understand. Let, let, me, let me back yeah. even further up, right? Okay, so like this is my normal spiel that I give is that you have to think whenever you're doing anything, like what is your idealized audience? And I like to encourage people to think. I have personally a good friend of mine from college who is a medical doctor and she works in an emergency room, right? And like she's a very smart, very hardworking person. She's smarter than I am. She got better grades than I did, but she works in an emergency room. Like she doesn't read as much takes as I do, right? So things get on her radar often slower than they get on my radar. And oftentimes to really understand the news story that just gets on your radar, you have to know some things that happened years ago or months ago or days ago or were reported on page A7 in a print newspaper, right? And so like explanation is about surfacing all of that amassed knowledge that the obsessive has and then organizing it in a way that makes sense to an intelligent, curious person who doesn't happen to have been following this for a long, long time. So like I did an explainer that was outside my, my wheelhouse on the 737 Max situation um, a, a little while ago. And, and to me, like the, the core explainer turn that like an actual aviation journalist, I think, like would have known but not written was about this thing with the competitive pressure against the Airbus 320neo that it happened way back in 2010, right? It's just that it takes a long time for airplanes to get made. So this story from years and years ago was relevant to understanding the decision making now. And it's not like I had the unique insight that this was important. It was that to the extent that I had a unique insight, it was that most people who were interested in the 737 MAX had not been interested eight years earlier in the story of why it was developed in the first place. And so that to explain those old stories was important to making a today's audience like see what was really going on one of the fun, one, of, one of the my favorite rooms is um the vox explain it to me slack room slack is our communication in, internal communication system and what i what i love about it is it's it's literally this open space for anyone to just come in and be confused about a subject matter that is out there in the world and i think that that is that's matt's um er doctor friend. Um, I think about my sister who was a teacher and and how she also couldn't understand the news in the same way. Um, a lot of people feel that about specific topics. Matt feels that way about 737s. Um, and this Vox Explain It room shows that even people on our staff don't know about specific topics. Sometimes you'll come in and drop something about culture or somebody else will drop in something about um, policy. And it, it gives you an insight about how much people want to know about subjects that are out there and don't have a good space um, 
or a place to find answers. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I love that room. I, I would say two things here. One is that I think of the key thing in an explainer and the key thing in explanatory journalism and particularly what separates it from, I think, more traditional kinds of news journalism as it's a zoom out, not a zoom in. A huge amount of traditional editorial ideation is about zooming in. Okay, here's the story going on. Like, what piece of it can we break off? What piece of it can we advance? Can we talk to this one person? Can we get this quote? It's about incrementally advancing a body of knowledge. But we're really putting it on the reader to assemble that body of knowledge, right? We're, we're assuming the reader has a lot of information. So if now, you know, like right now there's a debate about impeachment, and, you know, so there's, um, you know, stories today, for instance, about, you know, what Nancy Pelosi is saying about impeachment. These stories assume a lot of knowledge about how impeachment works, right? Like, what is Nancy Pelosi saying about whether or not Donald Trump should be impeached over things in the Mueller report requires like a lot of knowledge about who Nancy Pelosi is and like how impeachment works and what was in the Mueller report. And so it's about assembling. It is like going out into like, well, what is this whole thing really about? And so like maybe you need to explain impeachment or to your point, Matt, you had to explain competitive pressures in, in the airline industry. But I often think about, um, you know, the 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 new piece of news as being like one puzzle piece and the explainer sort of being like, oh, it's like a puzzle of a sailboat, right? Like here's where that piece went. So I think that that zoom out is really, really important. The, the thing where I often feel bad is that in a way our branding here worked too well. Right. When we came out and we're like, we're the explainer people and we explain the news and we explain an explanation and explainers and explaining and explains, there became an assumption that everything was an explainer. And so first, sometimes people would be like, ah, like I would write like a like an opinion column because we don't only do explainers. It's like explainers are our core, but they're one of many things um, in the sense that some things that The New York Times does are not news and some things, you know, Um and somebody would say like, oh, this is a great explainer. I'd be like, no, it's not an explainer. It's a take or it's not an explainer. It's a, like a narrative feature. Um, or on the flip, like, oh, Vox is it'll explain the news, but this is a take. I'd be like, yeah, but that it's not a – and so like in our – one thing that I've always think has been confusing in our public-facing presentation is that – we do have a very distinct language internally about an explainer. Like we assign explainers and assigning an explainer is a distinct action. It is not like just assigning a lot of other kinds of stories that we do. Um, but that I think is not all that clear in a for, in a in an external facing way. And so it can create confusion where on the one hand, people think that like a take they agree with is an explainer or they think that um, something they don't agree with should have been an explainer. And here we are failing at our mission. And I've never quite figured out the right way to handle that. I don't think as an organization we always have. It's one reason I really like the profusion now of like very explainer-based products like the the Netflix show or Today Explained or the highlight at Apple because like those are very much like everything in there more or less like is that core brand promise. Whereas, um, you know, the website or the YouTube channel, it has a much larger variety of, of, of content on it. Right. Well, I mean, ideally the explainers would take the form of like a special card product that would exist interstitially. <laughs> well, that was the idea, with yes. the other things. That, mean, that's, that, I think, why that happened. Yes, yeah. No, all right. Yeah. That's th that is my explainer yes. on why it wound <laughs> up that way. We we didn't, you know, because another way to do it, right, would be that like you could have like sections, right? So I or special I, links that had a yellow highlight right. on them. Which is, <laughs> I, I, I think that the traditional newspaper people uh, overstate the extent to which the audience like understands the difference between an op-ed and a news article. Yeah. But at least they're thinking about it is like we have our news section and we have our opinion section and we have our editorials and this all distinguishes it. And like our site is just not like 
built like that. There is like a little tag in the back end that's like, this is an officially registered explainer. But, you know, you could like hang a sign on them to be like, here we've explainered it. And so if you want to say it's not a real explainer, I will accept that criticism. But like in the other one, I, I brush it off. At the end of the day, though, like I don't think that stuff matters as much actually as the internal understanding of what it is you're trying to do. Something that's hard in journalism is you can't like patent this stuff, right? So like other people do explainers now and some of them are good. And, you know, fortunately for us, many of them are not as good, um, but, but some of them are good. And I do think there's a, because there's like a fear of opinion to some extent in the journalism industry, it, it leads some places to try to um, just do like definitions. Yes. Right? Or a like, bad explainer is a set of definitions. Like, like this is an encyclopedia entry about ISIS or something. And, you know, if you think just like about the English language word, if you ask someone who is very well versed in a subject to explain to you what's going on, like that person is going to offer their view. Yes. Right. Now, hopefully they will offer it in a fair minded way, like in a calm way. They will be persuasive. They will have evidence. They might even tell you that some other knowledgeable people have a different perspective on it. But like if you are knowledgeable and you're explaining something to someone, it's like kind of crazy to try to like hive off like your understanding of what's actually important or going on here. Because otherwise, like, why did we ask you at all? I, this to me, I think everything that you guys are talking about, I think, is actually like a a really big problem with media and audiences. This 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 like internal dialogue that we have about definitions and all that kind of stuff, and what audiences expect and get from us, and their confusion. I think that there is a huge confusion. I saw this all of the time at the. Um, when I was at the Washington Post, I launched a blog that was uh, an attempt for the Washington Post to sort of understand what the Huffington Post was doing around news aggregation. Um, so something would break. We would select a link to it, you know, quote a paragraph and then like write a headline to like help initiate the story um, on the Washington Post website. That model <laughs> gave a huge amount of traffic to the to the Washington Post, um, but it also meant that people who were coming to thewashingtonpost.com would find my article much fat my blog post much faster than a reported article um, that sometimes often just re-reported what the first article said. Um, and not always, but sometimes occasionally would re-report what this breaking news item would say. And I could see so often that the, that the audience didn't see any difference whatsoever between the blog post and the article. Um, but internally, it, they were treated hugely, vastly, vastly differently. And and I think that that hurt us in the, in the beginning of the Washington Post because the same kind of attention wasn't paid to the quality of the blog post or the same type of editing wasn't provided. And I see this now with like the opinion, the opinion article divide, too. Um, and I think that we have to take every piece of content that we put out into the Internet, um, whether it's an explainer or a take or an opinion piece, and and help the audience member understand, like understand what it is in the content of the piece, um, because they're they're embracing They're coming across it. And it's just another piece of content on the on the Internet. Um, and I don't think we do enough of a job. I think it's something that we can continue to work on to help in the in the body of the article or the body of the post to help people understand what this thing is. I don't have answers for it entirely, but Just I do have think the about first this three a lot. words of everything be in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> what what about the 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 most important uh, stories are not always new. How, how 
one of the things we thought a lot about was how to create editorial processes where we would not be so driven by the news that we couldn't talk about the important information that was beyond the news. Um, you know, like the racial wealth gap doesn't change that much day to day, but it's a very important thing that drives a lot of what is going on in this country. Early on, we had a lot of processes meant to do this. We like one of the only meetings that we really had on the books for all the editors was called the Evergreen Meeting, where everybody had to pitch an article that had nothing to do with the news. Like over time, that got very overwhelming. Um, I think we went through like a period, particularly around Trump, um, where we like really got news reactive. And I feel like it's gotten better as we've developed more products that by necessity pull us out of that reactivity, like Netflix Explained or The Highlight um, or, or, or even Today Explained. But that's a real tension. You know, I, I feel to my own work where I feel very strongly that I should be doing more work that is off the news, but like the news like shouts at you to respond. Um, and I don't know, like I I often think that it would be better if I had a more, uh, I guess, objective rubric for what was important, um, but it's hard. Like even an organization built to do this, I find it hard not to be overwhelmed by whatever like the rest of the industry and Twitter have decided is the news of the day. I My argument on this, it, it, I think that I think you too, particularly because you right now are in creator mode and you are working every day to determine what you should be covering and what you should be writing about or what you should be, who you should be interviewing for your podcast, uh, you feel that pressure much more so than I think it is shown as a consumer of Vox. As a consumer of Vox, I I do think that you you all are succeeding at this. I think that this is something that I feel... Um, I, I know that I'm going to get something that is that is not necessarily um, the latest information, um, but the information that I want to know about a subject matter. I know that it, it it is a utility for me in that in that way, and it's a utility across all of the products. You see it in terms of to Matt's point about the 737 Max explainer. We made that into an incredible video that um, helped me understand um, that pressure that Boeing felt in 2010 when Airbus was creating a better a better model for um, for their customers. Um, you see that in terms of you know the the type of interviews that you do on this podcast, where you really go deep into subject matters um, with people across across industries. One of the things that I like about being a consumer of Vox is that it does feel to me oftentimes that there is a space of calm in a very, very noisy landscape. So while you may feel a lot of the pressure, I don't want to like discount my experience as a, as a consumer of it because I don't always, I think that you guys are filtering a lot of that. I know that you're not always, we talked about this in terms of the coverage around the election. It's hard to not get pulled into a vortex, but I do think that you guys fight against it. And I think having that as, as one of our kind of like leading lights helps us fight against this on a, on a daily basis. You know, uh, to me, the, um, the election was a real wake up call, like a, like a, like a get religion moment on this because i think there's a there's a sort of fussy way of making the point that like what's newest and like driving the headlines isn't necessarily what's most important right you could say like oh the most important thing is like global poverty and public health and that you know and like don't care about stories you care about asshole and like i, I just like it's true of course that global poverty is important and you should read future perfect yeah but i <laughs> But I feel like that is not, like, helpful. You know what I mean? Whereas what is helpful is to say, like, I woke up the morning after the election realizing that a typical person who had consumed a, like, random sample of 5% of the election coverage every day for a year 
would probably have no idea like what the concrete stakes in that election had been. You know, there was like no coverage of like what are the Republican Party's policy agenda items that will reliably flow forward if Barack Obama's executive branch appointees are replaced by Republican Party executive branch appointees. Because that was less like, quote unquote, interesting than like the outrage of the day. But it was not like fussy, like journalism school scolding to say that like people should take an interest in that because we started to see when it started to happen, people were actually very interested in the potential loss of their health insurance plans. You know what I mean? Like it was really like it had not been dramatized and like some of that would I mean, I will take my own share of, like, I don't think I focus enough on that. I do think that, like, Vox focused more on that than many other media outlets. There were also tactical decisions made by both campaigns that that fed into this. But it was really, it was like, no, wait, like, stop, right? Like, let people be interested in the election if that's what they're interested in. But, like, what is important about the election? Like, what is really at stake in this thing? And, you know, this is really influencing how I am thinking about covering the 2020 primary, right, is to try to get a little less hung up on what do the campaigns want to talk about because they have their own reasons for that and, like, what is relevant to what people are interested in? Like, why Why would you care about this if you care? And like, what matters? And the fact that, to, in my opinion, like, a lot less of it matters than it might seem, right? It's like, it's in nobody's interest in this like 27 candidate field to be like, actually, none of these bills we're talking about are going to pass. But like, but like, that's true, you know, and people should know so that. So I, I do think here that... um I, I just want to go back to something else, but I, I do agree, with Matt, with a lot of what you said, which is that I've just been really struck by how much the incentives of the particular medium in which you're working influence what you can do in that medium. Like, how much can you publish in a day? If you can only publish one thing a day, you make choices that are different than if you can publish 50. How quickly can you publish? Does it take you a week to do the piece? Four weeks? 16 weeks? I mean, a Netflix Explained episode, um, like, uh, and, and the racial wealth gap is one of those. And I think I'm as proud of that racial wealth gap episode as anything I've ever been involved in. I think it's a, re- I, I'm, I really, really am happy with how that piece of work came out with that I, I collaborated on with Joe Posner. But that took a long time. So, I mean, it had to be something that was going to hold, right? It, it couldn't have been something that was like in the news that moment. And One of the things that I've begun to have a lot more respect for is just the need to diversify your content incentives um, because different incentive structures create really different kinds of work and and they diversify the the product. So the fact that there are only two Ezra Klein shows a week changes the kind of thing I would do against there being five, much less against there being 10. Um, Or, you know, the fact that, uh, I don't know, I could keep giving examples of this, but one of the things that it has made me do in terms of, you know, strategically how I see Vox is seeking out partnerships that give us different incentives. I mean, I mentioned Future Perfect, which is a partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation, but that that's partially a partnership to make sure that we are covering things that are really important about how to make the world a better place and that there is an incentive structure around them that is not solely being um, reactive to what is in the news. And I, I, I don't know. I, I underweighted this. I thought you could do more just with sort of like editorial, um, like speechifying, 
that like I could get up at the monthly editorial meeting and, and talk about this kind of thing and it would work. But it doesn't even work on me. Like I am very subject to the incentives of the place I am in. And so my coverage in the podcast is very different than my text coverage day to day. And the occasional videos I do for the video team are quite different than both of them. So in terms of that constant organizational work, I think something that's really notable is that, you know, we're the three co-founders of Vox. Not one of us is in the three top masthead positions at Vox at this point. Um, you know, where Lauren Williams is the editor-in-chief, Allison Rocky is, is, is the executive editor, Joe Posner is, is the head of video. And I do think that quietly, one of the real reasons for the success we have had is that we just had a really, really great second layer of leadership that is now the the the, the top tier of leadership. But I, I'd just be curious if either of you have reflections on um, what it was like, um, Matt, in your case, to move back to a creator role, Melissa, in your case, to to move over to like the the empress of all Vox Media role. <laughs> um, I think people on the podcast have heard me talk a little bit about my transition out of management, but both the um, bringing up of that group was really, really important. And I think us stepping aside was really, really important. And I think that's something that is often really difficult for organizations to do and also for organizations to then keep the founders around to do without that becoming a calamity. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's a couple different actually like layers to it, right? I, and I think an oddity of journalism institutions is that the editor title tends to sort of combine a managerial function yeah. with what is actually a creative process function of like editoring the articles, right? And I was very interested in exploring editing as a as a thing, like very sincerely. And I don't know. I like I like it, but I don't love it. If you know what I mean, um, and and one thing that I find challenging about it is, I think as an editor, I can help take like a really badly flawed article and like help get it up to like satisfactory. Um, but what really good editors can do is take like a fine draft by a competent person and like make it way better, right? And I don't know that I ever like figured that. Out, in part because I don't quite have the skill that great editors have where they can step into another writer's personal voice and like work with that voice. But I, but I find it interesting. Like I would be interested in, in exploring editing again, trying to get better at it. It's, a, it's an interesting challenge. Uh, but then there's managing, right, which has to do with um, – the the human element, right, of like not the article but the person. And that just stressed me out. You know, like how do you set expectations to encourage growth and improvement rather than demoralization and rage? And like I just like <laughs> I don't I don't fucking know. You know, it's, <laughs> that's that's really hard. And like that's what great like sustained leadership of an organization requires people who have mastery of that set of problems, which in a journalism institution means you also need to know something about journalism, right? But it's like actually quite a different thing from like what would be good articles, right? It's like what would be a good way to relate to human beings in a hierarchical but friendly, flexible, but it's like that's it's it's beyond my capacity. I mean, I think that one of the things that um, I've really learned about myself and and I think this speaks to the management part that you're talking about, Matt, is that um 
it's no secret internally that I uh, am probably the more emotional of the three of us. Uh, I have no I have no problem uh, tearing up on occasion um, and show expressing my emotions. I think I'm um, pretty emotional. <laughs> you guys have become emotional, but I think I'm that you emotional. guys on a more I think on a Matt more might regular be the most emotional. Of us. I, you're, <laughs> it's true. I express my emotions. I think, How about you have this? Mo- I think you have the healthiest emotional expression of the three of us. <laughs> All right. You guys are internalize a lot of it, a lot of your emotional <laughs> changes. And I think actually it's it's a little bit harder for you guys because of that. That like I think that like you take the emotion in and like hold it in and you don't like reverberate it out in some ways. And I feel like what a, a lot of management actually is like absorbing other people's stress or or fears or uncertainties and and steering them towards a place that they should be go- that they already know that they need to go but they might be a little bit like concerned or nervous about it and it turns out like I love doing that. I love knowing people. I love spending time with people. I love getting to know like kind of like what's their like hopes and dreams and it's like really fun for me to go through that process of like helping people like be their best selves. And I've loved to learn how to be a better manager at this company. I think that it's been really fun for me and to think about how we can create a can create a place where crazy creators like the two of you can succeed and do work. But my ability to do that is entirely dependent on the fact that we had an incredibly strong management team with Lauren Allison and, and Joe. Um, because if we didn't have those um, those key ingredients, those people who really helped, I think, teach us um, about management, I think Lauren Williams and Allison Rocky probably taught me more about management than, than anyone else, um, we wouldn't have been able to like cr- trust Vox um, and the success of Vox o- over to that team. But it was a pretty no-brainer, um, I think, Ezra, when you were ready to go back to creating more, um, that we had a transition plan in place. Yeah. Um, also that was, that was like too real as a diagnosis of my, <laughs> my emotional blockages. <laughs> I can't have people on the podcast who know me this well. That, that was like too deep. <laughs> Sorry that I psychoanalyzed you on the, in no, but, but correctly. So, um, so I always ask people for, for book recommendations on the show. I'm not going to do that here, but what are a couple, uh, Vox, piece of content recommendations you guys have over the years like what what when when you think about a couple pieces that vox has published in whatever format in whatever way um you know what are what are you know two or three that that stand out to each of you and matt i'll start with you oh man that's uh you you gotta you gotta let me prep for this stuff um so okay so i i think that the um the K-pop episode of Explained on Netflix was amazing and is the most – it's just like a really clear example of like delight. Like I would not go on the internet and like search for can I watch a mini documentary about K-pop, but I saw it and it was amazing and it was fascinating. And then, you know, friend of mine today is, is just a, a story that, that published t- today on the site of Zach Bisham's uh, article about uh, the sort of incel community and where it came from. And that's not structured as like a Vox explainer in a classic sense, uh, but it is very explanatory in its kind of approach and its narrative in, in things like that. Um, I think that the um, uh, Julia Belouz's sort of reported feature from, it's like a parish in Louisiana that has the worst public health outcomes of, of any place or, or one of the worst. There was something like, I'm somebody who likes to look at like government maps of things a lot. And it, it was something that I'd always kind of like wondered about, like, like what's going on over there? Um, and, you know, she really kind of hit it out of the park and, 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 you know, 
delivered on a lot of traditional journalism type stuff, but also in a voxy way was like, not just like tell some stories about this, but like actually what's going on, right? Like try to really dig down. And that's what always frustrates me about narrative reporting is that like sometimes a good story can crowd out like real facts and information and analysis. And, and you know, she absolutely does not do that in that piece. Then, you know, you just listen to The Weeds all the time. The greatest podcast, the only podcast that matters. <laughs> um, I do think that the fact that like we launched a show called The Weeds is a sign of uh, the ability to be a little playful that we recognize that sometimes people really want to get into like the wonky, wonky weeds with, it's a with show you for, all. for marijuana connoisseurs, if you have yeah. to. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, okay, so a few things that I'd recommend. Um, I, I was trying to think about trying to do one in every single category that we have, but that might be too many. I think that Joss Fong was our second video hire um, and uh, just consistently blows my mind with her... Um, depth of knowledge um, around science and particularly how we use evidence and um, and uh, in experimentation and how we learn from that. She does a series called Observatory on YouTube that every single video is like is worth watching, um, both because they're beautiful, but also because they just are so rich with information. One of my favorite um, is around um, where she creates a mini Stonehenge and uses that as a as a um, visual explainer. I've loved what you guys have been doing with the highlight. One of my favorite was around Brian Resnick's um, piece uh, where um, astronauts left their human waste on the moon um, for further scientific study. Not only did it have an incredible, it, it really great visuals to go along with the story from our visuals team, um, Buzz Aldrin later um, tweeted it in what I think is the single best recommendation of a Vox piece of content when he said that he felt really bad for whoever had to go back and collect his personal bag. Um, so, um, and I think that that's kind of a, that, that to me is always, the, there's a really great tone that you guys created, um, of, uh, what well, we all created, but of playfulness, um, mixed with really smart, um, inquiry and that allows you to take on big, complicated subjects and then, and then make them really fun and enjoyable to, to read. And then, you know, I think that the, in terms of the podcast space, I'd say that today explained, just every single day they put out a they put out pieces that are um so smart and and really create that one that one story that I want to listen to. One of my favorite ones was um a recent episode that they did with the greatest title. It was called um Friends Without Benefits. And it was about um the Facebook um content moderators. Um and they had a, a reporter from The Verge come on, Casey Newton, to talk about his um his, one of one of his big pieces. Um, and it just it just shows how um, thoughtful that the Today Explained team is in distilling big, complicated um, projects and really putting it uh, into a delightful 20 minute episode. So a couple others I would call out uh, Sarah Cliff's series on ER billing was just remarkable and I think has also led to some really fascinating changes, both legislation, but 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 also um, Zuckerberg General Hospital out in San Francisco changing the way it did its billing. But she did a remarkable job in soliciting all this information, all of these ER receipts, and then using it to build a story set that explained uh, something that happens to people all the time in their life, but is obscure and I think was quite obscure until she did that. So I'm really proud of that piece of work that, that we did. I always loved Amanda Taub's piece on authoritarianism and Donald Trump and, and the authoritarian mindset. 
I uh, today explained, I think is great. I, when you were talking, I was thinking about their episode on Amazon HQ2, which I think did a great job of elucidating a bunch of the issues that were leading those Amazon um, headquarters to become so controversial. And then I also want to call out Julia Blues's Show Me the Evidence series, which is a really remarkable effort to narrativize literature reviews on on health issues. And I've just always thought is one of the the best things we've we've done at Vox. So those would be those would be my couple off the top of my head. Melissa Bell, Matt Iglesias, thank you for an amazing five years. And here's for the next five. Thank you. Onward. Go team. Thank you to Matt. Thank you to Melissa. And of course, thank you to you. Um it's wild to be here. <laughs> um I don't know. I don't I don't I don't know that I, I should say more, but it's emotional to have conversations like that. And I do hope that five years from now where I'm able to sit here with them and have a conversation about how much we've changed from what we are now. Um, There's a lot I'm proud of that we've done. There's a lot of things I wish we had done differently. And there is a lot that I see that we could be that we are not yet. Um, I'm amazed at how far we've come. But I think the hard part as an organization or one of the endlessly hard parts, right, because they're all hard parts in a way is, you know, things go okay or well enough and you can just get stagnant there. So I think they're a, a real challenge for us, something that we talk a lot about internally, but, you know, I'm, I think a lot about just myself is how do we keep moving forward? Um, so, you know, five years from now, um, we can all come back, revisit and see if it worked out. Uh, but thank you to you for being here. Thank you to my producer, Jeff Geld. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. <laughs> 